This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We're the friendliest species of human that ever evolved, and it was a major advantage. And the, the idea is that when we recognize that it's only been 50,000 years, if that, that we've been alone on the planet as the only human. And so we think that thinking about how uh, our culture exploded in the last 50,000 years points to friendliness. Because when you can network lots of minds together, you have an explosion in innovation and you can have cultural ratcheting increase in power and speed. And so you can have uh, a cultural being supercharged. We call it survival of the friendliest because it's a particular kind of friendliness that we're talking about, kind of like a mama bear, where, you know, when is the mama bear most beautiful? It's when she's with her cubs and she's loving and kind, but that is also the moment when she's most dangerous. That's husband and wife team Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, whose collective experience with chimpanzees, bonobos, and dogs has led them to the radical idea that we humans are so human because we're so friendly. They've written a book called Survival of the Friendliest, and in it they lay out their case in a very engaging way. We talked about that and a few other things, like who was clearly more Neanderthal, Brian or me? This is so great to be talking with you today. Alan, we're so happy to be with you. Oh, thank you. you what, what I love about this is you, you have a great answer to the question that I ask all the time. <laughs> Why is it that humans have this amazing capacity for both nurture and torture? What is it about us? And you've both studied this and written brilliantly about it. What's the short answer to that? Uh, I think the short answer is we're built for friendliness, but we're also built to turn that friendliness off when we feel threatened. So do we want to do that? Turn our friendliness off? No, we need more friendliness. <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now, please. <laughs> well, but you could see how that would be adaptive, um, you know, early in our evolution when there were different species of humans around, when we were trying to protect our group from, you know, threats like saber-toothed cats, like other groups of humans, like Neanderthal. It's very adaptive. You can't be friendly 
all the time. There needs to be a point at which you defend those you love. But, um, you know, sometimes in the modern world, these strategies can be maladaptive. And I really think that's what we're seeing right now, right? Mm -hmm. Big time. So let me ask you a question. This may be too personal, too early in the conversation. Now hit us, hit us with nothing. Nothing's off limits. Go, Alan. We love you so much. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious to know. Here you are, both of you, researchers, writers, and the book is written in the first person, in Brian's first person. It's, it's, I did this. I did that. I'm curious about how you cooperated in writing the book and how did you arrive at that personal pronoun? So the book is based on 20 years of research and it's um it's a, a lot of it is Brian's research so I wasn't actually there. I'm kind of like you I'm, Brian I'm going to let you talk in a minute. Um I'm kind of like you in that I see myself as the translator in this process. I'm like his sign language person to the the greater world. And so I didn't mind the personal pronoun um, as long as people could read the book at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian has been turning red and <laughs> winced. <laughs> what, what's your version? Uh, the book is a marriage. Uh, you can imagine uh, not just having a science communicator trying to translate uh, a scientist's work, but actually sitting next to them, helping them write. So if you enjoy anything in the book, it is despite me. And uh, Vanessa has done an amazing job at turning broccoli into ice cream. And uh, I'm so thankful <laughs> to having had somebody who could take, you know, my terrible science speak and I think translate it into something people might read. So let me ask you about the serious angle to this question. You you both feel strongly or have evidence for the idea that the reason our species was so successful is that we had a greater tendency toward f friendliness than the species or the groups that we outlasted. Is that right? So we're the friendliest species of human that ever evolved. Uh, and it was a major advantage. Uh, and the, the idea is that when we recognize that it 50, it, it's only been 50,000 years, if that, that we've been alone on the planet as the only human. And when you look at the fossil record, what becomes clear is the normal explanation we have for how humans happened, where we come from, doesn't really work if you recognize that the other species of humans had big brains, they were cultural, and probably linguistic in some way that we would recognize and be impressed by. I mean, those are normally the things we'd say that make us different from other animals is we have culture and language and big brains. They had all those things. So why are we here and they're not? And so we think that thinking about how uh, our culture exploded in the last 50,000 years uh, points to friendliness because when you can network lots of minds together, you have an explosion in innovation, and you can have cultural ratcheting, which uh, I know you've covered many times before, uh, increase in power and speed. And so you can have uh, a cultural being supercharged or a cultural species supercharged relative to the other humans. So I think that we have actually a new social category that doesn't exist in other species. What's that? So chimpanzees and bonobos uh, 
recognize group members and they they also recognize when they are in front of a stranger. They recognize there's someone they've never seen before that's unfamiliar. Bonobos have a very positive response to someone they're unfamiliar, unfamiliar with. They actually prefer strangers. Uh, chimpanzees are fearful. They're, they're, they're typically afraid of new individuals. So in humans, we also recognize strangers, but we actually recognize different types of strangers. They're strangers that actually share our group identity, and they're strangers who do not share our group identity. And that is totally unique to humans because it sets up the possibility that I've never met you before, but you are part of my group. So that could be, nowadays, I imagine that could be indicated by the words you use, the language you use, the symbols you wear, what it says on your baseball cap. All of it, all of yeah. it. But what we all do is we look for information about group identity. And if we feel like we meet a stranger who threatens our group identity or threatens those that we love in our group as if they're family, all that friendliness, all those unique features that allow for friendliness, they shut down. And we can morally exclude those individuals. And we've reached a point for some reason where if we sense that another group is different enough from our in-group, we don't only resist them or stay away from them, we tend to dehumanize them. We go so far as to say they're cockroaches or they're animals and we're not animals, right? You can't just you can't just give me a thumbs up. You got to say something on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, right. It's like it's like audio. <laughs> it's like a podcast. Just because you can see Alan partner. on the on the video, it's a podcast. Anyway, so um, no, yes, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. You can see that it was easy to work together. Oh my god, I googled I googled divorce so many times. How do I take the kids to Australia from my divorce day part? Anyway, so um, yes, that is that is right now. I've forgotten the question. It was, was about it? Uh, dehumanization. Oh, yes. I mean, this is where I just get so stuck on trying to explain 20 years of Brian's theory in one sentence. But we call it survival of the friendliest because it's a particular kind of friendliness that we're talking about, kind of like a mama bear, where, you know, when is a mama bear most beautiful? It's when she's with her cubs and she's loving and kind. But that is also the moment when she's most dangerous. And that is what's true for us, is that when we're with people on any and, and what the modern world has done is, is it's given us this, this incredible amplification through social media. We can communicate across time zones and uh, across the world and, you know, future, past and present. But what it is is that it allows us to defend this in-group against those who are threatening towards us and become in and that's when the, friend the cruelty starts. And so it's the survival of a particular kind of friendliness that allows us to protect and defend at the same time. Vanessa, you wrote a book about bonobos that I thought was really beautifully written and put me in touch with bonobos in a way I hadn't been before. I, I, you even included a, a section on the bonobo handshake, which made me glad I wasn't in closer touch with them. <laughs> mean that, Alan. You need to go see them. They will bonobo handshake you. You gotta love it. Hey, well, well, for anyone who for anyone who doesn't know what the bonobo handshake is, would you describe it? 
So a bonobo handshake is up. So when, as Brian said, they're extremely friendly to strangers, to um, those they haven't met before. And it's a quick sexual contact that for them is no big deal. It's just a, hi, how are you? We're friends. Um, and, you know, much has been made of this, that bonobos are hypersexual. Uh, we always call them trisexual because they'll try anything, like male, <laughs> female, whatever. But, um, you know, it, it's not a big deal to them. It's, it's just like a handshake. It's like, hi, I like you. We're going to be friends. And then you make contact with the sexual you, organ. Yes, yes, yes. And, well, and, I, I'd, I'd have to say, if I met a bonobo today, I'd say, excuse me, I'm social distancing. <laughs> They wouldn't listen to you. There's no such thing as social distance in a bonobo, I think. But this idea, I saw you describe and play a video in a talk where you uh, described how eager they are to not only meet a stranger, but share with a stranger. One bonobo was in a cage by himself or herself and had some food. But there was another bonobo in the other cage, did, and they didn't know each other. Is that right? Yeah, that that's right. So this was um, a study we did at um, a sanctuary in Congo called Lolea Bonobo, and their bonobos were in the enclosures where they sleep, and um, they hadn't had breakfast yet. And one bonobo, we gave them like the the best fruit salad you can imagine, and they were so excited. And a chimpanzee, if this happened, they would eat it all really quickly. But the bonobo, what we what, what we found was, and, um, you know, this is something that's so special about them and what I love, but they would actually go over and let in another bonobo who, you know, they they didn't know that was it was not part of their group, and they would prefer to share with a stranger than one of their own group members. Um, yeah, and for me, this is just part of what bon makes bonobos so special and so inspiring is that, um, you know, we always think that humans are just the pinnacle of everything, including altruism, like charity and, and organ donation. But, you know, in many dictator games, if we have the option of sharing with someone who is part of our group or someone we see as part of our group and sharing with a stranger, we usually, you know, share with our group member because there is that expectation and a potential that maybe one day further down the road that we'll get something benefit. But bonobos are not like that. So, Brian, here's something I don't get. I don't know if this is an answerable question. We're so like the bonobos. They're, they're our closest cousins, I think, genetically. If they even outdo us at friendliness, and, and it's a question of, if, if, as the title of your book indicates, the survival of the friendliest is what helps a species survive. How come bonobos didn't become uh, us and we didn't disappear? Why, why aren't bonobos driving cars now? I think the, the answer there is that bonobos uh, are limited by the fact that they don't have this new social category we talked about. So they... What, I'm sorry, what, what social category? That we can recognize uh, strangers that are in our group. So, ah, I see. So in a way, it's a, it's an access to symbolism. Yes. So so because we have social identity, the thing that we struggle with right now so much, but actually social identity is what allowed us to collaborate and um, view others uh, who are not our kin 
as if they were. We feel as if they are our family and we act and we are friendly towards them as if they were family. So bonobos just have familiar, unfamiliar, and they're attracted to those that are unfamiliar. They interact and they can form friendships with them. But it's not the same when you can have a, a group identity that we all see as our group identity and we share that between us. That, that sort of supercharges the ability to cooperate in a way that bonobos don't have. Brian, you seem to have begun to explore these ideas when you were playing with your dog Oreo as a boy. So, so the origin story of why I study dogs was I was working with Mike Tomasello, who is a developmental psychologist, and he was arguing that understanding intentions, understanding cooperative communicative intentions is really special to humans. And it allows, it's, it's crucial at nine to 12 months to lead to the development of culture and language. It's the first window we have into other people's minds is understanding when someone else points for you, gestures, you understand what they mean. And he was arguing this is completely unique to our species. And I simply said, I I think my dog does that. I think my dog can read my gestures. And I was a 19 year old. I didn't know what I was saying. I, I just said to this titan of developmental psychology and, 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 I, and I learned a really important lesson about what science is because he didn't, you know, shoo me away and, you know, make fun of me or ignore me. When he realized I was serious, he said, hey, well, this is this could be really exciting. I might be wrong, but I might learn something. Uh, let's do some experiments. And so he was m- almost or maybe more excited than I was to find out that he might be wrong in this really interesting way. And so, so how did you how did you work with Oreo to try to find out the answer to that question? Uh, well, you know, not all science is rocket science. And so we just simply hid food in one of two places, uh, kind of spread apart, uh, maybe uh, four or five feet. And then I just gestured towards where the food was or where his toy was that he was searching for. And we were able to show he couldn't use his nose to do this. Uh, he was using the gestures and we used the same paradigm or the same game with kids and with primates. And it ends up that dogs have the same set of skills that young children start showing at nine to 12 months, but bonobos and chimpanzees can't solve those same problems. And did you do, I have a memory that you did a study around the world where you recruited researchers to do the same experiment with all different kinds of animals. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we've done, uh, we have a, a version of this where we did it with dogs and we had citizen scientists do dogs all over the world and we found the same thing again and again and again uh, in very big samples of dogs all over the world. Um, and we also did a study where we were looking at self-control uh, all over the world in different animals. And the reason that's important is because self-control is like the break on our emotions. And I don't know if you remember, but when we filmed together at the North Carolina Zoo, there was a chimpanzee named Hondo, and he was really greeting you, the alpha <laughs> male of the group, uh, you know, smashing on the glass. And we were talking about emotional reactivity and how it can prevent cooperation. And so self-control is really that th- that break on those emotions. And so we studied animals all across the world and found uh, a feature, uh, which is basically brain size, that predicts how much self-control they have. Well, I remember when that animal leapt at the glass separating the two of us, I showed no self-control whatsoever. <laughs> 
yeah. I nearly jumped out of my pants. I was in <laughs> you were very brave, though. Very brave. I, I felt the same way, honestly. I work with I work with chimpanzees every day, and it got me too. So it, it's it, and that's a great example where you know we knew the glass was there, but it was you know so our rational mind knows that we're safe, but the emotional re reactivity is fight or flight, you know? And so, but we were able to, our, our self-control did win because we didn't actually run away. You guys were still sitting down. I saw that interview. <laughs> so when dogs, it, it was often thought apparently that dogs were domesticated by people because people uh, wanted to have the advantage of having a dog around for various reasons, I guess for affection and to do some work. But that would have taken a long, long time, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And and there's evidence now that dogs domesticated themselves. Is, is that not so? Well, um, yeah, no, Brian was just nudging me like, you say this. I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. Okay. Um, oh, so, he wanted you to well, he wanted Yeah, you to he wanted answer. me to, he wanted me oh, to the, answer. See, so look at this. He's this gesturing is, is again. So, he's, he's gesturing so, on, a, on a podcast. It's like... <laughs> Okay. I like it how you're the young, hip, with it one of this trio, Alan. Um, anyway, <laughs> you're so many light years ahead of Brian. Anyway, so, um, yes, so we think that dogs domesticated themselves. And what we, we mean by that is that, um, yeah, there's all these stories about how we brought dogs into the campfire and then we, like, train them. But it doesn't really make any sense when you think about what Ice Age wolves looked like. They were really big and they have fangs and there is no way we would have been like, yeah, come in and like hang out with us at our campfire and look after our children. I mean, you just see how people are reacting to coyotes in the suburb right now. Like I just had a listserv freak out about it because there was a coyote wandering around up the road. So it's like, no, it wouldn't have invited these wolves in. So um, what happened was probably that um, what we are calling self-domestication is that there was a severe selection on friendliness in these early wolves. And so, now, friendliness know, meaning it, 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 it sounds like friendliness means in this case that there were some wolves who weren't afraid to get close enough to a human camp to rummage around in their garbage and feed off of that. Is, yes. that's that that that's not exactly friendliness but it's less fearfulness right yes that's right it's the willingness to approach um and brian always gets all these because you know he's like the dog guy he always gets these questions why is my dog eating poop and it, i mean you know really that's probably how it started like human poop is like a cliff bar if you are an ice age a cliff bar if you're wondering if you're an ice age wolf trying to get something to eat and like you know well there you go there's the energy bar you need for the day but humans, we killed every carnivore in the Ice Age. So there were a lot of bones laying around in our garbage. Bones in the garbage, like we pooped outside camp. And, it, you know, if you're an Ice Age wolf, this is like totally perfect. But if you were aggressive towards humans, if you showed any <clears throat> kind of, um, you know, antagonism, then the humans were just going to kill you. So... What it was was that it was these wolves who were unafraid but also unaggressive. And that severe selection on friendliness is what drove self-domestication. When we come back, Brian and Vanessa explore this idea of self-domestication and how they believe it applies to us humans as well as to dogs. 
Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? 
It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods. There seem to be some advantages to this friendliness that we possess that were a big surprise to me when I read about them in your book. It changes your behavior. It changes your features. Tell me about that. I think the big, one of the biggest discoveries of the previous century was the work by Dmitry Belayev with the uh, domestication experiment in Siberia on foxes. And there was selection for friendliness on a population of foxes. Uh, they were selected each year. Uh, the friendliest foxes that like to interact and, and be with humans were bred together. And those that didn't were not bred. And then there was another population that was a control group that was bred randomly to how they interacted with humans. And the big surprise of all of this is selecting for friendliness actually also changed their bodies. So uh, their faces became uh, shorter. Uh, they got smaller teeth. Um, they're, they're, they had curly tails, more floppy ears. Uh, none of those features were selected for. They weren't trying to create foxes with any of those uh, cute puppy-like features, uh, but they all just came along with friendliness. And so... Huh. So then when you think about what we were talking about, natural selection uh, for friendliness in wolves where fear, uh, friendliness replaces fear, that's exactly what uh, we saw in the experiment is when you replace uh, fear with friendliness, you have changes to your body, to your brain uh, and to your behavior and even your cognition or your psychology. Um, and so domestication whether it's human-driven or driven by natural selection, can have a big effect on um, the whole uh, organism. You know, I think that hit me as I was reading your book. Early on, I saw a picture of a bonobo next to a picture of a chimp in the book. And I was struck immediately by where the eyes were in the head of each animal. In the chimp, they were recessed. They were under a, a, a ledge mm -hmm. of, of, of mm -hmm. the forehead. Big brow ridge. And in, and, and in the bonobo, they were out and exposed, vulnerable, open to, to be seen, to be read, much more readable than the chimp's face. And is that connected, do you think, to to the friendliness and over a period of evolution? So, spoiler alert, we think that self-domestication is also what happened to us as humans. So, if you compare that bonobo and chimpanzee face, the wolf face to a dog face, then, you know, and our face to our early human ancestors, you see the same kind of changes. Like, we have flatter faces, we have, um, you know, shorter faces. So we think that we are also self-domesticated along with um, dogs and bonobos. Self-domesticated in the sense that the friendlier of us got more numerous than the less friendly. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah and it was, it was via, it, the idea is if natural selection can operate on a bonobo, one of our closest relatives, uh, 
or acted on dogs. And, you know, look how successful dogs are. There are dogs everywhere. And unfortunately, wolves are threatened with extinction everywhere they are. Uh, perhaps that same process through natural selection acted on us. So, Vanessa, this seems like a good time to ask you to explain the moment in your life when you realized that Brian is a Neanderthal. Oh! Well, you know, I was talking to Steve Churchill about Neanderthals, and he's like, yeah, they have these big heads, and they had these huge overhanging brow ridges. And then, you know, and this was actually in a department talk, and I look at Brian and I'm like, <laughs> you have a huge head. And... Overhanging it's the hair. It's the hair. It's, it's not. Confusing. It's not. I, I, Even after a shower, he has a <laughs> massive head. Like, I just specially order a face mask to fit over his ginormous head, and I'm like, you're a Neanderthal. <laughs> That's what you are. And then this was even before the studies that came out that said that actually we have some Neanderthal genes. If Brian did the study, I bet he's like probably 90% plus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want you to know that I'm a few percent Neanderthal too. All right. Oh, nice. yes, yeah. but your face is much more pleasant, you know, not as recessed. <laughs> but I eyes. do have that, I have that ridge on my brow and my father had it much more pronouncedly. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that happens when you have uh, selection against aggression uh, and selection for friendliness, not just in humans, but in other species, is our the shape of the skull becomes more spherical. Uh, uh, scientists call it globular. Uh, so if anyone ever says, oh, you have such a globular skull, you should say, oh, thank you. Um, but uh, it means very round, like ball-like. And so Neanderthals have a longer... Uh, less spherical skull like a football uh, like a football uh and so it, one of the shocking findings of the last few years is that there is a relationship between the shape of modern humans living today their skull shape and the level of uh neanderthal genes they carry so you have a less globular skull if you carry more neanderthal genes um so that may be something you know we share uh alan <laughs> So I'm interested in self-domestication for humans. Is it, is, it a, uh, is it a question that we have to wait a thousand years until we evolve into a more friendly group? Or do we, are there things we can do now to self-domesticate ourselves in the sense that we can become friendlier, more cooperative, and do something about this categorization that we're capable of? You're looking at me, but I think no, you, you should, should. No, you should definitely take this one. Okay, all right. Oh, cooperation that's so beautiful. Yes, I do think there are things we can do. And when I talk about human self-domestication, uh, people often uh, say two things. They'll raise their hand and they'll say, oh, does that mean we should breed people to be more friendly? And I think I think the answer is no. Uh, <laughs> the, and and we, we go at great lengths in the book to explain why, because actually it, it is so laughable, the idea, but but actually, I just finished telling you that if you select foxes for filliness, they become smarter and socially savvy and they get along with people Friendly. better. Friendly. Let's accelerate so, the so process. So why, why can't that happen in humans? And there are really good reasons why, and we detail in the book. Um, 
But the most important of which is the fox experiment, they only allowed 1% of the foxes to reproduce each generation. There's 7 billion people. So not only would it would require eugenics, and not only it, you know is eugenics morally repugnant, but it would also require that we would have to know the genes that are involved and be able to recognize the friendly people and that it would even be heritable. And we know there are thousands of genes involved in human social behavior, unlike the foxes. It's not possible. Uh, and you also don't know if by accident you're going to wind up with 7 billion people with floppy ears. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Another of the dangers. So, so uh, if we're going to be friendlier species, I think we actually have uh, the antidote. I think we know what the vaccines are. I think we know they work. Uh, and, and what are they? What are they? We spent like two years putting together um, solutions that we thought would help. And the main finding that, you know, across disciplines, the one thing we found that would help is friendship and cross-group friendships. And when you look at every atrocity, every human atrocity throughout history, there is always a small group of people. Like, for instance, in Nazi Germany, um, there was this man called Andre who who helped uh, smuggle the Jews out of Germany. He was, um, you know, he got taken to prison and beaten up and locked up, but he moved and he just kept helping people. And the Oliners, this research couple who looked, tried to figure out what it was about these Germans who risked their lives and their families' lives, and it was terribly frightening, what joined them all together. And it wasn't that they were particularly heroic or brave or, you know, anti-authority. It was that they all knew people or or who loved people who also happened to be Jewish. So these cross... So it's cross-group friendships. Friendship is the most powerful tool we have to counteract dehumanization. And it works in the most intolerant people because, you know, we're hearing a lot about um, multicultural education, but there's the, the evidence is that it only works with a, with a group of people who are already pretty tolerant. Like the most intolerant people, if you kind of like yell at them and lecture them and try and educate them, it just really entrenches their intolerant ideology even further. The one thing they found that helps is if that they form a friendship, like the friendship becomes this bridge into another group. And not only do they become, have huge effects on how tolerant they are, but they also bring this tolerant back into their own group. So when you look at C.P. Ellis, who was the grand cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan, if you look at, um, and you know, Ann Atwater, the civil rights activist, like he was completely changed by his friendship with her and became a lifelong advocate. And, you know, there are lots of solutions and lots of people screaming about what's going to work. And, uh, you know, we were kind of novices going into this. And what we found across the literature was that friendship was the vaccination for the dehumanization of another group. I'm wondering, it seems that the temperature is so high now, it's so hot now, that I imagine there would be people who would be afraid of your proposal because they would consider it to be harmful to national security. <laughs> if, they, if they come at us with guns and cannons and tanks and planes and we say, let's share this bowl of fruit, it, <laughs> it kind of puts us at a disadvantage. So I understand where you're going with this, but I think that um, more 
in today's situation, the best thing we can do, or the greatest example I have is, is the peaceful protest. So there's all sorts of protests going on right now. Some of them are violent and some of them are peaceful. And this researcher, Erica Chenoweth, did this amazing research when she thought that violence was the best way to enact change, to overthrow authoritarian regimes and to get, you know, the political and social change that you wanted. But what she found was that um, peaceful protests are so much more likely to enact that change because you don't see the other group as being threatened. Peaceful protests tend to be larger, um, women and children can participate. And so, you know, it, it sort of like garners the friendliness we have to each, towards each other. And so, you know, when we see those beautiful images of the, the protesters and the police meeting and connecting, it's because it's in the absence of this threatening, this sort of like component of threat. Well, that sounds like a note of hope to end on. We're running out of time, but we, we always end our podcasts with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Are you game? Yeah, wait, We're ready. is it either or? Like, how do we know who's supposed I think to answer? It, uh, why, why don't you answer first and okay. then Brian, Brian answers second, okay. unless you need time to think about it. By the way, I've heard, I love your show and, 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 I, and I've heard so many people do this. It's really fun. But I'm really intimidated to do Yeah, it, Brian's so. really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad Vanessa's here. Yeah, that's why he's pushing me first. <laughs> okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood why bonobos aren't driving cars. Like, I know Brian said he explained it and everything, but I think if we lived in a bonobo world, things would be better. Girls are in charge. There's no killing everyone. Yeah, how do we get there? Uh, I wish I could understand how to get people excited about cross-group friendships. Okay, good. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Like, Brian, just you're wrong. You're so wrong. <laughs> and you're an idiot. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag fake science. <laughs> you say that's fake science? Uh, ha, no, 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 no. He said, I, 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 he said that to me all the time. I would get drafts <laughs> from the book back with these giant hashtag Fake science all over it. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Can I have a bonobo handshake? The answer is what? always no. It's always <laughs> no. It's always no. The answer is always no. Don't ask me. Okay, well, Brian, Brian, just keep that in mind, Brian. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I will. <laughs> I'm learning as we go here. Thank you, Alan. It's been very helpful for us. Um, it's like marriage is counseling. Is an interview or a therapy message? I'm not sure. The uh, strangest question, uh, I think probably it was about, does my dog know I'm pregnant? Um, I, I was just, I, what? I don't know. Uh, does it? Uh, that, was, that was a surprise. That was a shock. That's a pretty good answer. I don't think anybody's ever <laughs> given me that answer. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Ooh. Well, that, that would be Brian, and I just start talking right over the top of him or, like, hit him really hard in the side <laughs> on a podcast where you can't see, <laughs> where you can't hear it. Uh, How about you, Brian? How do you stop a compulsive talker? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I try my best uh, to um, listen, I guess, and uh, I, I'm not sure what I would do if it was a compulsive talker. Okay, let's say, Vanessa, you're at a dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know. Mm -hmm. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? How did your parents meet? 
I, oh. I love that how one. About, yeah. I, how about you, Brian? I, I've I've heard other people answer this on your show, and I know your answer. And I when you you when people have said this, I love to say, "What are you excited about? Like, what what are you excited about right now? What are you passionate about?" Yeah, and yeah that's similar find, to mine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What gives you confidence? Mm. Our love. Oh God. <laughs> No, uh, the, the, the uh, I, I in in hu- in humanity, uh, I, I I would say anything confidence in yourself and humanity and the, the stars and whatever you whatever you pick. I, I I really do believe we're the friendliest species that ever evolved, and I do think that in the end, uh, humans will find a uh, a positive humanizing way forward, and it's going to work out. Uh, my answer is puppies. I love puppies. Puppies give me confidence, especially when I see people interacting with them, is that we are capable of so much love and we are capable of joy. And I think we're going to make it. Okay. One last question. What book changed your life? (sighs) The one we just wrote? I'm sure. I'm sure every everybody has wanted to say that. Nobody had the nerve. Oh well, it's you know when you're with an Australian, sometimes they just say what's on their mind. Uh, the uh, I've you know a lot of books uh, have had big, big impact, um, but I will I would say Inhumanity uh, is a book by uh, David Livington Smith, and it's on dehumanization, and uh, it really gave me confidence to talk about uh, the fact that dehumanization might be a human universal. Um, and that really blew my mind that, oh my gosh, we all have, we all dehumanize. Uh, it's not that they're bad apples. We all do it. Well, this conversation, I am sure, has humanized me. I especially love how you're both able to laugh at each other and at yourselves. And it's been really fun to talk with you. Well, we love you, Alan. You're our favorite. <laughs> you're, you're a science communication hero. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much. All right, you guys take care of yourself. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Brian Hare is a professor in the Department of Evolutionary Anthropology and the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience at Duke University. It's at Duke where he founded the Canine Cognition Center. Vanessa Woods is a member of the Hominoid Psychology Research Group, working with Duke University as well as Loloya Bonobo in the Congo. The book we talked about is The Survival of the Friendliest. Brian's research with dogs led him to found a company called Dognition. That company aims to help you understand your own dog's mind. You can find it at dognition.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. 
What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150, thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Jim Rothman. Jim helped me understand how the thousands of tiny parts that are moving around in every cell in our body actually get to where they belong. And he was able to do it using everyday analogies, including apples and FedEx trucks. The cell is very small. Think about the smallest hair that you can see and reduce the size by about a factor of 10, one-tenth as big, And that's about in the range of what a cell is. Now, within that cell, there is a highly organized system. So if you think of it as a complex city, you have a factory, you have a distribution center, and then you have uh, each of the many uh, stores and restaurants and places where things are done in a city. Jim Rothman, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.